Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on the show, we found our limits as podcasters, but we're going beyond to learn more about our true selves. Oh, that peaked. <laughs> <laughs> One more time, sorry. Wow. Today on the show, we found our limits as podcasters, but we're going beyond to learn more about our true selves. Is that Endeavor? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Gam Jabbar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name's Leo. Leo. Yes? We're not alone today. Oh, no. I mean, oh, yes. There, there's someone in the proverbial room with us. It's true. I'm excited. <laughs> Hello. Welcome, Elaine. Elaine. Hello. <laughs> Elaine. <laughs> welcome to the show. How are you today? <laughs> I'm great. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's our pleasure. And Elaine, we wanted to bring you onto the show because we found your incredible YouTube channel, Nerd Cookies, where you make these amazing Dune videos. Yeah. We're going to have you tell our listeners all about that at the end of the episode. Yeah. But to start it off now, <laughs> we wanted to ask you about Dune. What's your relationship with Dune? And tell us a little bit about when you first got introduced to it and why you're a fan. Well, thank you. Well, I discovered Dune as a kid, and I thought it was such a fascinating blend of science fiction and fantasy. It was unlike anything I had read before in either genre. Yeah. Frank Herbert's writing style is just so engrossing. You're just immediately immersed into this strange universe. There's so many things that are unfamiliar, these terms and customs that aren't, aren't explained <laughs> right away. There's always that lingering mystery. Mm -hmm. My imagination just went wild. And there's always something new to discover and appreciate. So when you read it again, there's always something new you've come to learn and that happens to me a lot, actually, when creating uh, lore videos and diving into these various elements and characters, Yeah, such as also the case with our subject today, which I'm very excited to <laughs> dive into. Yeah, today should be a really fun episode. And I, I got to say, if Frank had explained everything about his books in the books, Leo and I would be out of work. Yeah. <laughs> we would have yeah. nothing to talk about. So I'm glad that there's that sense of mystery in the novels. And I'm I'm glad that Frank did that like incredible world building, like you said, Elaine. I, I agree. That is also what drew me to the novels and to Dune, the Duneverse. So uh, I'm glad we're on the same page there. <laughs> well, Leo, do you want to tell us about today's episode? Because this was your idea. You came up with this. I know. I know. I'm proud of it. Uh, I'll, I'll say very quickly for everybody, today is going to be a spoiler episode. Yes. Which means we're going to be talking about anything. <laughs> no holds bar. We are discussing from the very first pages of Dune all the way through, well, probably only about all of Frank's books. We're not really going to be talking too much about Brian Herbert today. But mm -hmm. yeah, we're going to be talking about all of that. So 
That's your warning. <laughs> That's your warning. If you haven't read the first six books, I really want to emphasize some of what we're talking about is very heavy into some of the best parts of books five and six. So that's that's it <laughs> you've been warned you've been warned yeah <laughs> right so go read them today <laughs> go read them come on <laughs> they've been out for a while so today we're talking about amtal amtal yeah. um, i've been saying amtal amtal i think it's amtal yeah yeah <laughs> I, listen that sounds great <laughs> so we're talking about amtal which is a word that i found in the encyclopedia but then was a little bit shocked to see that it was used three or four times in the first book. Exactly to your point, Elaine, this is something that I just forget about as I'm reading, you know, my, my umpteenth read through. But the Amtal role was something that really stuck out to me because on the surface, it appears to be about equipment and tools. But this idea of testing something to its limit and to its breaking point, when you take it a little bit further... Amtal is applied, the Fremen applied as sort of religious, mm -hmm. like a sacred theory to life. Mm -hmm. But even to the world of Dune, there are so many applications of it. And I, I really thought it would be fun to, you know, really nerd out together and, and kind of explore <laughs> the ways that Amtal can be applied to some of our favorite concepts and characters and kind of events within the Dune universe. Yeah, totally. And I mean, we structured today's episode keeping in mind that, Elaine, you're going to be here with us, and Leo and I don't just get to geek out about Dune <laughs> and ignore you the entire time. We structured today's episode. We want, we want to start by just sort of digging into and defining the Amtal rule or Amtal. I think those are used interchangeably. Yeah. And then once we've defined it a little bit, the meat of today's episode is going to be the three of us, me, Leo, Elaine, have brought three examples of Amtal rule from the Dune universe that we want to present to the class and discuss together. So that'll be the meat of today's episode. And I'm really excited to hear what examples you guys brought to the table. And I'm excited to share mine. But first, we should just briefly define Amtal rule. What is it? From the terminology of the Imperium, quote, a common rule on primitive worlds under which something is tested to determine its limits or defects, commonly <laughs> testing to destruction. Commonly. <laughs> right. Commonly, like, testing to destruction? What? My guy. Yeah. <laughs> but like Leah was saying, that's the gist of Amtal rule is pushing something to the brink, pushing something to its breaking point to either let it be destroyed or allow it to flourish and reveal some truth about itself. Whether this is a piece of equipment, whether this is a person, whether this is an ideology, right. this philosophy is central to so much of Dune. That's so true. And, and the... Um... The destruction part is of a traumatic event <laughs> Yeah, that can be applied on such a grand scale or to an individual story. <laughs> and something could be destroyed and made different after. Nothing is more traumatic to a rope <laughs> than breaking, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which you know, sounds, sounds a little cheeky, but ultimately it's true, right? Yeah, like this yeah. idea of trauma is such a good way of putting it. And I think that really frames the conversation well. Uh, another quote, and this is from Chapter House Dune, uh, and this this really, I think this speaks to how Amtal, even though it's not mentioned past the first book, is really alive and intrinsic to the Dune universe. From Chapter House Dune, quote, To know a thing well, know its limits. Only when pushed beyond its tolerances will true nature be seen. Man. Yeah. I love it. 
I mean, those books. This is so anime. It's so it's so anime. I love it. It's so anime. But also, I definitely got <laughs> heavy anime vibes from the Honored Matres coming back, and they're like <laughs> faster than you can see kicks and stuff. I was like, okay, yeah, I've seen I've seen this episode of Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I actually like this quote better than the Imperium one because. This is so succinct, and it explains it well. To know something well is to know its limits. Yeah. And that's so true for, again, so many characters, so many themes, so many philosophies in the Dune novels and the Dune universe that we're going to get into. One thing I wanted to ask both of you, actually, Leo and Elaine. Yeah. We should, we'll definitely see Amtal rule in the movies. Right. But do you think we'll hear the word Amtal in the movies? <laughs> wow. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. What do you think, Elaine? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> there will definitely be a challenged race. The The word Amtal was used in the miniseries adaptation. True. Oh, yeah. So Jameis did say Amtal, it is my right. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in the book, Stilgar mentions it as well, that he invokes the Amtal rule. So there's definitely, they do say it like on several occasions during the confrontation with Jameis. Mm-hmm. But again, yeah, it's hard to know what, from the film aspect of it, film adaptation, what they will decide to, what terms they'll decide to use, if they're going to take the time to explain it. Right. That, that's the thing. Are they going to take the time <laughs> to explain these customs? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. They might just say that he wishes to test Paul if he's, if he's the, his place in the legend, in their legends. Personally, I hope not. I hope they just drop it and then people have to Google what is Amtal rule? And then this episode will be titled, What is Amtal rule? And it'll come right up. Yeah, I also hope Denis Villeneuve writes into the script, and to know more about that, go look up Gom Jabbar, the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I hope they do. I hope they do use those terms yeah. um, as often as they can. <laughs> it's part of the charm of the universe. Yeah. Yeah, again, again, it's world building. Even if they don't explain it, oh yeah, it's world building, and it creates this sense of mystery. And Elaine, like you were saying, this is part of what drew you to Dune in the first place, and wanting to learn more about it and diving deeper into this massive universe that Frank Herbert crafted. I think it's okay for them to drop the word Amtal and then never explain it, and then yeah, push listeners to us to explain it. Yeah, draw people to the books. Right. Right. It's like the, this is the hint. This is the breadcrumb that leads you into the like crazy rabbit hole that is mm -hmm. <laughs> Dune lore. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly. The last thing I want to say about whether or not this will show up in the movie is I think we'll definitely see it in practice, right? Oh, totally. I think all three of us have basically implied <laughs> that like some sort of ritual by combat, some sort of test for the main protagonist. Like this is a very common trope, right? We keep joking about anime. <laughs> Right. And how this is such a like very anime thing. But this is a very common storytelling device, right? Protagonists have to be pushed in some way, have to overcome some sort of conflict right. yeah. to either unlock some secret power or truth about themselves, which helps them defeat the big bad guy, right? <laughs> like that's like a very generic hero's tale. And that takes place. So I think we'll definitely see the Amtal rule in effect. I don't know whether they will name drop it, but... Our listeners can be in the theater whispering into their date's ear, like, this is Amtal rule. Psst. Psst. Leo and Abu told me about this. Elaine was a guest. It was such a good episode. You should Google it later. Just Google it later. That would be awesome. Abu, you wrote in the script here 
the examples of Plus Ultra from My Hero Academia, yeah. Super Saiyan from Dragon Ball Z, uh-huh. and then other examples, question mark, and I was like, yeah, I should come up with some non-anime examples, and then proceeded to think of only other anime examples, so <laughs> <laughs> I think we're doomed. Yeah, like Naruto? <laughs> Naruto, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 100% Bleach, yeah. Exactly, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> totally. So this very anime storytelling device is central to Dune also, so I think we should get into our, our class discussion portion of the episode, because I'm excited to hear what examples you guys brought. And As you're listening to this episode, we've selected sort of three concepts, three ideas. But if something comes to you, again, open invitation. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, So shoot us an email. Again, it's gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We uh, love hearing from you. Shameless plug. (laughs) Love it. We got to get at least one of those in every episode. (laughs) Yeah, necessary. (laughs) Uh, So this first concept is, is yours, Elaine, right? So when I first heard about the subject for today's uh, discussion, of course, my mind immediately goes to Jameis's challenge to him that he invoked on Tal. Yeah. But then when you think about it, as with most things with Frank Herbert and his writing, when you think about it more, there's just all these other things open up as a theme. Yeah, yeah. You find that it's an essential piece of this universe, of the organizations, how humans have been able to adapt and advance to this point without the reliance on technology. The Butlerian Jihad was such a traumatic, cataclysmic event Mm -hmm. that inspired humans to push themselves past their limits. Yeah. A a sequential series of uh, traumatic events was required for training and testing and to move the human race forward. This is such a grand scale of how this (laughs) theme was presented that yeah, that when when you mention that as a theme, I'm like, wow, that is actually part of what makes Dune Dune. <laughs> yeah, it's told on this grand scale, but also this the smaller. Yeah, it's core. It's core to this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's such a good point framing the Butlerian Jihad as trauma to the like humanity's reliance on technology. I, you think about like Mintat training and the Tleilaxu face dancers and the Bene Gesserit and all of these ways that people are pushing the literally the limits of humanity. It's guild navigators. Yeah. <laughs> all of the crazy variety of capabilities that we see are just different pockets of humanity pushing those limits of how far can I take such and such training method or how far can I take a human's ability to retain data? Yeah, exactly. Ah, that's such a good point. And I would add that Paul, our main character himself, goes through a number of <laughs> boundary-pushing tests, right? Yeah. Tests that could and probably should have broken him, but don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he comes out the other side a stronger, better messiah. All hell, you know? Like, he... <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness, too. It would be a boring story. <laughs> there was no no testing, no limits. <laughs> right. That's so true. I mean, we've seen it in the trailer, right? Yeah. The Benny Gesserit test of the Gam Jabbar, our namesake. Yeah. We saw the very first test that Paul literally goes through in the very first pages of the book. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That sets the stage for, and we don't really probably realize it at the time, it sets the stage for this entire universe, but to also see these changes that have happened in humanity on the individual in their journeys in the central characters journeys but paul is continually tested he is <laughs> it's just a recurring theme 
of the story. <laughs> he loves it. It's his favorite. Right. <laughs> Such a masochist. He loves it, baby. More pain. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right off the bat, like you said, the Gamja bar sets a pretty uh, high bar when it comes to mm-hmm. <laughs> when it comes to trauma and pushing your limits, testing if he can rise above his animal or natural instincts. And yeah, that's a pretty severe test, and it shocked him into this, right? Uh, to basically what this universe is and what's expected of him and his destiny. It's a huge event from right from the very start, too. <laughs> yeah, the very first pages of the novel, and then of course he goes to Arrakis, another big event, yeah. a life event of sorts, <laughs> and he's continuously being trained since childhood. Like the yeah. the dude's just taking tests his entire life. <laughs> he's taking his taking his licks. Imagine that SAT prep to be Duke. <laughs> <laughs> everything yeah mentat training he uncovered that and yeah um and i didn't even think about it at the time but even his sparring session with gurney yeah you know paul was sort of joking with gurney before you can see some of his adolescence come out mm-hmm. and that there's not many moments of humor and levity in in this story so that's one of the ones that stands out to me is there before their sparring session where it's kind of they're joking with each other and paul pulled pranks on gurney and right but during the sparring session, he basically has to wake him up to the fact that this, I'm not just regularly sparring with you. I need to make sure you're ready. Yeah. And to where Paul thought that he had actually was betraying him. So it was pretty severe. <laughs> he wasn't playing around. That's such a good point. You know, we, we get to know Gurney Halleck so well throughout Dune that you forget that early time that Paul is really thinking, oh my God, is he trying? He's, he's trying to kill me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's really a shocking moment for this young you know duke's son also a reminder that man number one way that people are getting killed these days in the high houses is assassins and you know stabbing (laughs) stabbing (laughs) yeah and just 15 years old he's got a a huge weight on his shoulders yeah which i think is why a lot of people connect with his journey if you if you read it at a younger age which i think is why i connected uh, with his journey the most when i first read it yeah and then when i got older i think i related more to Gurney and uh, Lady Jessica's characters. But yeah, he he goes through so much that I think those that are growing up relate to because growing up is a very, can be traumatic at times. (laughs) Oh my God. You can say that again. 15 years old was pretty traumatic for me. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Right. All of high school. Yeah. When you have to grow up very fast or or something uh, like that. And basically that's what Gurney is trying to get him to do. Yeah. You have to leave your childhood behind, basically. We're leaving to Arrakis. Death is around every corner. You know, you have to take it seriously. Right. It's like when you're about to go from middle school to high school. It's like, this is death is around every corner. Don't don't mess around here. It's a clear application of Amtal. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. I was going to say, speaking of duels and gurney, there's another iconic duel that Paul has at the end of the book, actually. And during this conversation that we're all having, I'm actually sort of realizing how the end of the book mirrors the start. At the start, Paul is dueling in this sort of fun, jokey way against his trainer. And at the end, after having gone through all of the horrific tests that he does in the novel, he faces off against Fade Rotha in a very deadly, serious, not joking at all duel. AKA Sting. Yeah. Yeah. Sting. (laughs) Sting. I can't wait to see who they cast for for Fade. I'm eagerly... It's Sting, Elaine. It's still, it's still Sting. I'm sure he still looks good. I'm 15. Uh, oh, that's frightening. It's frightening uh. to imagine. Make it happen. 
<laughs> Make it happen. That would be so incredible. What a flex. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. Oh, God. He goes through so many different confrontations, but he really had to change how he approached an enemy. Yeah. So that was another thing. Like, again, his character has continued to adapt through these tests. And with Jameis, I think that was another significant factor in how he fights Fade was that he kind of had to change up his approach because they weren't using shields. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, good point. And that was just so ingrained into him about fast on defense, slow on attack, and think very quickly or you were going to meet your end, which is just I'm tall to a T in the Fremen uh, right. <laughs> way of life. That's such a good point. <laughs> Adapt or die. Not to mention Fade Rotha is one sneaky motherfucker. Yeah, he's got a hundred tricks. It's crazy. He's got poison needles where there shouldn't be poison needles. He's got a thousand <laughs> needles on him all the time. <laughs> just so many. You don't play fair. <laughs> Typical Harkonnen. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, You know, it's funny because for this episode, I was rereading that duel scene, that Conley duel scene. And it's such a good point because Paul even notices, yeah, there's some hesitation from Fade because he's not used to fighting without a shield. And it was the years on Arrakis fighting and, and killing on a planet where if you use a shield, you'd be drawing doom upon yourself and everyone around you. It's it's the big ways that the trials prepare him. You know, riding a take it from me, kids. Riding a sandworm changes you. It's <laughs> it's a whole experience. <laughs> but it's also the small things. It's every single time Paul entered combat, he was being challenged to change up years and years and years of training to this pivotal moment where he's in a deadly conflict where we all know, looking back, he survives. This is great. Yeah. But in the moment. We don't know. And even the prescient Paul in this moment of fighting is unsure. He says in the in the book, he's really, there are so many paths that don't lead Paul Atreides forward in, in time. Yeah. And that even though he is now the Kwisatz Haderach by the time of this Canley duel, which, by the way, also, Jesus, what a what a drama. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Goes into a coma. Yeah. There, there's so many things going on. I, I hope that they can adapt some of these, what's going on behind the scenes, but that's going to be so hard to do on film. <laughs> yeah. That's why it's so, you have to read the book. Yeah. Because you're missing out on so much if you don't. True. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, totally. You, you have to read it to understand like so much of the internal dialogue and there's so much happening behind the scenes and sort of inside characters' heads and the 1984 film handled it a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll see how the, <laughs> the Danny Vilney film handles it. It's a way of putting it. I don't think they're going to do the internal monologue. I do I do know that. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Just narration. Or yeah, just hearing your their thoughts, whispering thoughts. It's just sting, whispering in your ear. Every person's internal voice is sting. <laughs> I, will say, I will say, sort of wrapping up our discussion on Paul, this sort of Amtal philosophy can be applied to like a normal non-messianic lifestyle, I think, right? You can push yourself to somewhat of a limit and use that as a way to improve, right? Like I, I imagine something like, I don't know, hosting and producing a podcast, Leo, like you and I <laughs> didn't do that right. a year or two years ago. And then we pushed ourselves to learn. We made a ton of mistakes. <laughs> we did things wrong. We made episodes that were terrible and no one will ever hear. Right. That was part of like, we had to break Gamjabar to its limit and make like really bad things 
for us to find the truth of what Gamjabar is and like try and make the best version of it. So I think this sort of philosophy is not specific to only if you want to become a messiah, you know, like it it's, can be applied to the everyday person. Oh, for sure. I mean, because we all face challenges. Yeah. But it's how you endure them. And when you endure, it changes you. Like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that kind of saying. And, you know, you just continue to rise above challenges, adapt mm-hmm. and evolve. It's just it resonates so deeply with me um, through the course of the individual. So it's br- brilliant writing. Right, right. For sure to demonstrate this on such a large scale, but also we can see it happening in the eyes of the individual and the central characters. That is such a good point. Yeah. I also wanted to highlight, you mentioned in the notes that you wrote, Elaine, and I, I think this is brilliant, and I wanted to make sure it's said in this episode, <laughs> that he wanted his victory to be his own, to oh, quote yeah. your to mm-hmm. quote your note. <laughs> I think Paul's agency in that final fight is so important to highlight because Paul knows better than anybody what is gained through being challenged and what is gained through earning forward momentum, earning change, earning evolution. Mm-hmm. And that agency is something he actively chooses. I mean, I mentioned that he, he has prescient blindness in that moment. He doesn't choose to be blind in that moment. It was not a choice of Paul to be like, ah, I don't want to know what's going to happen. Yeah. But he did choose not to use, you know, because the Bene Gesserit, <laughs> I mean, always up to their shenanigans, uh, instilled like a safe word <laughs> for for fade it's like yes. if things get too crazy just like whisper pineapple and he'll, <laughs> he'll stop whatever he's doing their backup plan honestly that would stop me in my tracks in the middle of a duel <laughs> if, like if i was dueling someone and they whispered pineapple at me i'd be like what take notes everybody if you have to duel abu <laughs> um but it's you know he chooses not to use that basically guarantee of victory because he knows the easy way out yeah yeah it's not he doesn't want to do the easy way out he doesn't want a guaranteed future if it means not understanding the true nature of his destiny and his kind of purpose which coming from someone who has recently become i mean as close to omniscient as any human has become up to that point in dune for someone to make that choice, clearly it's important, right? Clearly it's vital to survival. Right. And also just the absolute greatest flex of all time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could have said pineapple. Didn't. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's a good point. Like the willful choosing of the hard way right. to achieve the goal that you want. He didn't want to be under the Bene Gesserit's thumb or to owe this victory to them. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that choosing to go this route and then kind of rolling the dice of how the outcome would be right you know changed him going forward as well so whether that's your own decision or to undergo these traumatic events to undergo this kind of challenge or it's forced upon you um either way it has a dramatic effect on who you are as a person going forward and that's what he chose to be in that moment if that makes sense (laughs) totally yeah Right. And, th- and that choice is key for Paul, I think. I think Paul, of all people in the Dune universe, recognizes the importance of choice and recognizes the importance of overcoming a challenge to become a better version of you or to find the better outcome of something. I think he, of all people, recognizes that the most. Yeah. I was going to say, the Bene Gesserit keep coming up, and I don't know if that's intentional, <laughs> but it's a wonderful segue to <laughs> Leo's example of Amtal that he brought to the class today. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I had to stop myself from talking about it because <laughs> Paul's transition to the Quisatz Hatterach 
is exactly the taking of the water of life and the spice agony, yes. which <laughs> coincidentally was one of the first things that came to mind for me when I was thinking about Amtal applied to the Dune universe. This idea that the most powerful, most influential secret sect of people in the Dune universe mm-hmm. are broadly capable of what they're capable of because of this application of Amtal, because they, uh, well, okay. Hyper brief refresher. I mean, we all know the Bene Gesserit and we know that the Reverend Mothers can see all of the genetic history and genetic memory of their female lineage, their female side. But as a reminder, this isn't just this isn't just something that happens. <laughs> this is like kind of a crazy process of, you know, years and years and years and years and years of prana bindu training. We talked about this in the in the Weapons of Dune episode. Right. The control over every nerve of the human body and also other things, M- metabolic control, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> which is crazy to me uh and goals honestly like if i could just choose to burn some more calories that would be fantastic but <laughs> but you know um but this kind of final step is drinking the water of life right this is the liquid exhalation from a uh baby a baby sandworm right a stunted worm yeah I they keep it around water right they keep it from yeah growing. they keep it around in a little pool so it doesn't <laughs> Kitty pool, but in a in a (laughs) enclosure to where it doesn't get any bigger or something like exactly, yeah. (laughs) Not a pool; it would die. (laughs) It's a very cute image. A pool of sand, (laughs) just a little pool of sand. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah, exactly. So a stunted sandworm, they drown it, and as it dies, they pull it from the water, and it expels this liquid, which is a deadly, deadly poison. (laughs) It's just such a deadly poison, and. They drink it. They have to, as this poison is actively killing them, they have to consciously break down and nullify that poison. They have to kind of turn their awareness inward. They have to break down that poison. But the thing that kind of blows my mind, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is it's not even, I mean, the water of life is an important part of that process and it's made very clear that that's necessary for this or the sisterhood views it as necessary to keep their order going but it's not even the poison that's awakening their other memories it's the trauma of very nearly dying and getting so close to that mortal edge is that right that's how i understood it it's like the catalyst yeah 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 exactly that triggers this near-death experience for a would-be reverend mother. And it's actually the experience of desperately fighting for your life and using this metabolic control Mm. to overcome this poison to get to the other side of this near-death comatose experience that makes you a reverend mother, right? It's not just drinking the water. You can't just like get a little Kool-Aid mix of water of life and become a (laughs) reverend mother. Like It's overcoming the experience itself that does it it's like the ultimate test of all that you've learned before in your training yeah and it's yeah yeah imagine the sat prep to become a reverend mother. <laughs> man yeah do or die <laughs> I don't know. so one of the few brian herbert books that i've kind of read i haven't finished it i'm sorry sisterhood <laughs> sisterhood of dune is that the full title yes you know the sort of current rumors out in the blogosphere is that HBO is, is adapting a TV series. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I haven't yet seen. Yeah, it's called Sisterhood of Dune. That, yeah, and that's what I'm seeing. But I also haven't seen Nail in the Coffin guarantee that, that's it, that it's happening. No. They were supposed to start filming last November. Oh. And I just think that, you know, all of what's going on is just thrown a lot of kinks into the works when it comes to filming. Yeah. So they're probably working out logistically, but. Um, I think it's the series is being worked on as far as like writing and and that goes, but as far as shooting and casting, I still have yet to hear anything concrete on that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was seeing when I was looking around for it. Yeah, but I don't think it's adapted from that book. Just, really, I don't think it's adapted from. I think it's based on it, but um, it is a prequel. Yeah, uh, but I don't think it's a direct adaptation of of that book. It could be loosely based of the Brian Herbert book. But it's kind of like based on the whole. The whole universe. That's so interesting. What we're gonna make a Dune Sisterhood movie or show, <laughs> and Brian Herbert's like, finally, one of my books, and they're like, no, no, we're not gonna use your book. <laughs> it's like, but it's called the same thing. That's hilarious. Um, well, I, regardless, I kind of, I hope it happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I hope that all Dune stuff happens, and I hope there's more Dune stuff forever and ever. But the way that Brian Herbert explores it is fun. It's interesting to read about the early years of the Bene Gesserit where, not not quite the early years, again at this point they're like, they're still tens of thousands of years old as an order, but <laughs> they are experimenting with different poisons. You know, they train adepts for years and years and years in all of these different ways, and then comes the moment where they poison them <laughs> and hope that they survive and the reason I bring this up is because, at least according to this sort of Brian Herbert process, a lot of them don't. <laughs> a lot of them, for a long time, would just die. Or there'd be, like, entire hospitals full of comatose would-be Reverend Mothers, people who failed the test, basically. Mm -hmm. And it's really a, a, a reminder, and it puts into perspective, you know, we see through the first Dune book, effectively two successful takings of the water of life we see jessica do it with the reverend mother in the siege and then we see paul do it when he becomes the quisatch hatterick or we kind of we hear him talk about doing it after he does it and again as always we'll color our perspective as readers mm -hmm. i got through the first dune book and saw 100 percent successes but it's important to note that this is not always a successful process there's a high chance of death or mental maiming that can happen because really this transition into a reverend mother is an application of Amtal. A lot of people break and those who don't come out knowing a true deep understanding of themselves and all of their ancestors. It's, it's cool. It's crazy. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And it speaks to, again, the, the scope of this theme of Amtal. Yeah. How as an organization and an institution, like this was the testing of themselves and some were destroyed in the process of, of pushing themselves as an organization and adapting and yeah. to do these superhuman abilities working towards their ultimate goal. But yeah, it was not an easy way to, to get there. And which is most things with this universe, you either adapt and can do it or, or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Very few easy tests in Dune. <laughs> <laughs> like wow, I became a mintad. That was easy, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. No easy A classes in Dune. You know, all of them are life and death. Yeah, that will be interesting to see though. Done in a series like that, focusing on the sisterhood. Yeah, and those that aren't, 
you know, successful, yeah. those that aren't able to successfully pick up the training. And I feel like that would actually show more about what all is involved right. mm-hmm. uh, of a Bene Gesser and what they can do. Because it's it's not really explored that much or it's not really readily apparent to other people yeah. what all they can do and how powerful they are. And, and, and that's how they want it. Yeah. So that would be interesting to see the internal workings where they don't have to, you know, hide that. I agree. I hope the show explores the quote unquote failed Reverend Mothers, right? Because it shows us the sacrifice. It shows us how difficult it is. Right. We spend a lot of the do novels with really powerful, top of their class, like top 1% Reverend Mothers, right? <laughs> like they're all badass and amazing yeah. and great <laughs> yeah. and aced every test they ever took. We don't really hang out with the Reverend Mothers who <laughs> kind of like C's get degrees their way through Reverend Mother School. Like, so I. W- would it be rude to like bring up Irulan? I was just Ir- thinking about her actually because she didn't take the test. <laughs> she's kind of a. She's oh kind of, my gosh, you're right. <laughs> she's not great. She's not great. <laughs> she kind of sucks. <laughs> People are lying to her and she's like, man, they are being truthful. Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, I, I, I take it back. I totally forgot about Irulan. The bad Benny Jesuit. <laughs> <laughs> she's the like one example. She's pretty much the only one we meet. And yeah. it's tempting to be like, wow, she's the worst. But frankly, she's probably still top 5% of like pe- human capability. Yeah. <laughs> but just compared to like Jessica and the literally Reverend Mother Supreme, it's like, okay, yeah, she's not good. <laughs> I think it's too because she's more willful, which doesn't make for a good right. Benny Jesuit, really. You have to toe the line. You have to do what you're told. Yeah, great point. Um, and being the emperor's daughter probably gave her more clout in that regard. That's true. That, that's where her true value was to the Benny Jesuit anyways, was just her. Her proximity to the emperor. You know, right. relationship. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true. So they didn't really care. <laughs> right. Damn. Well, I'm glad we took this opportunity to absolutely dunk on Irulan. <laughs> As a... <laughs> I love Erlon. I like I like her too. She's such a tragic character. I, I do as a character. Yeah, she's a great character. I, I hope we see more of her. I I really hope there's a continuation of this story because you know Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. There's so much that it adds to it. So I I do hope that this first film is successful. So hopefully it will lead to more adaptations of those books because that would be really cool to see. And especially with Erlon too. These other characters that that are also awesome. <laughs> That we can see portrayed. Yeah. <laughs> Not to mention, relating to the book as a young person, Irulan gets friend-zoned so hard. <laughs> like, massively friend-zoned. And as a young man, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know what that's like. So, you know, we talk about the, the Reverend Mothers, the, the ones who fail dying. And that is the end. That's the end for a lot of people, right? Death is the ultimate end to the story. Unless... Hard pivot. <laughs> unless, Abu... Your name is Duncan Idaho. Unless, unless you're Duncan Idaho, at which point my man's got like unlimited continues, pockets full of quarters in the arcade. <laughs> right. Cats? Only nine lives? <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was a that was a wonderfully awkward segue to my thanks. example. Yeah, great job. I liked it. It was good. Oh, thanks, Elaine. All right, Abu, you're out. Get out of this podcast. <laughs> so my example that I wanted to discuss with you guys yeah. was Golas. Yeah, this concept of Golas in the Dune universe: uh, reincarnated humans, sometimes clones, mostly Duncan Idaho's. Golas, Golas are key to the Dune universe. <laughs> Statistically speaking, you're probably Duncan Idaho. Statistically, they're like 98% Duncan Idaho. 
I mean, he was just so awesome. Oh my gosh. It makes sense. He was. Have you seen him climb rocks? (laughs) Makes sense. They want him back, especially if he's Jason Momoa. Oh, perfect (laughs) casting. Tall glass of water. I'm so excited to see Jason Momoa play Duncan. So, okay. Speaking of Golas. Yeah. Golas to me, like when I was trying to think of Amtal rule examples, Golas to me were just like the most clear and on the nose example of Amtal rule. Because in Dude Messiah specifically, we come across our first Gola. His name is Hate. He's the first reincarnation of Duncan Idaho. And this is the first time that a Gola is able to tap into their sort of genetic ancestral memories and remember who they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually remember the moment of their death, which is traumatizing to imagine. Yeah. And the way to go about getting a Gola to remember their past is trauma. Yeah. Is to literally push them to the brink of psychological trauma to where basically their memories snap and they remember who they used to be pre-Gola. And that's exactly what happens to hate in Dune Messiah. He loves the Atreides, right? Duncan Idaho is incredibly loyal to the Atreides. He loves them. He serves them. That's his purpose in life at this point. And then the Tleilaxu conditioned him to murder Paul. You know, once he gets like the trigger word, the secret word, he's supposed to murder Paul. And these two sort of opposing ideologies, his love for the Atreides, his love for Paul versus his Tleilaxu conditioning to murder him clash and that's what causes that psychological break to happen and that's what makes hate remember who he was and turns him into duncan idaho because all of the memories of idaho come rushing back to him and this sort of breakage this psychological breakage continues to happen we we get into future golas and god emperor of dune and leto too as we've been joking orders Thousands of Idaho Golas across the 3,500 years. Buy him in bulk. Yeah, right. I hope he's yeah. getting a bulk deal at this point. I like this Jason Momoa. Send, send me 100 more. <laughs> How many Jason Momoas do I have to buy? <laughs> to get a, get a get discount after the first 500. Buy nine, yeah. tenth is free. <laughs> oh my God, did the Tleilaxu have like a punch oh my card gosh. for their Golas? A Gola punch card. They just had an assembly line (laughs) (laughs) of going. So Leto is getting these sort of prefab Duncan Idaho Golas who... Off the rack. (laughs) Exactly. And and the key part here is that they're showing up with their memories. He orders them. They show up. They already have their memories. Right. And the Tleilaxu are using exactly what they learned in Dune Messiah to trigger these memories. All of these prefab Duncan Idaho's that get shipped right to Leto's door in two days, Amazon Prime, baby. (laughs) They have their memories because the Tleilaxu shatter them psychologically, you know, force them to remember their original Duncan Idaho memories over and over and over and over again. So the sort of psychological trauma pushing them to the brink is the way to unlock their true selves. And that is quite literally the definition of Amtal. Yeah. Crazy, too, that that was the first time that happened. I mean, again, by the time you get to, like, heretics, the idea of awakening a Gola seems like old hat. You know, you're like, yeah, you just yeah. traumatize them super crazily. Yeah. yeah, easy. And then they're like, back to, okay, cool. <laughs> Eventually, I found myself getting impatient. I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> come on, Tag. <laughs> come on, you know, Duncan. Oh, yeah. But to remember that, like, with hate, the Tleilax who were like, well, I hope this works. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what a gamble. I mean, worst case scenario, he just kills Paul, which I guess is fine. Uh, best case scenario. He abdicates. 
yeah <laughs> just Sightail is like i wonder if this is gonna work <laughs> like it's crazy to me leo plots within plots plots within plots this could go any number of ways. We'll see. But yeah, the ultimate goal is to get Paul off the throne. What other ways? That That's so interesting, the two. And that's partly why he's my favorite character. Right, right. Not only for what he was in, in the original Dune, but his reincarnation. Yeah. How it's so interesting how he was brought back without his prior memories, but that he it was restored to him because of his love and loyalty for the Atreides mm-hmm. being at war. Like you were saying with the traumatic event with going against what made him who he was internally, what uh, it was such a huge part of him. And so that, that caused him to just all those memories uh, being rushed back. And, and that always fascinated me in regards to Gola's. Yeah. But it was really cool to see all the central characters really have a moment like this where it's, it caught like traumatic and, you know, testing, destroying what came before. And re- really, he was different before. And now he, he was restored to Duncan. And yeah, it's on the nose example of Amtal. And it's um, really cool how it's portrayed in Duncan <laughs> repeatedly. Great point. Yeah. Right. But in other characters, too. All the characters. Yeah. All the major characters go. You're just like you're saying, Elaine, go through something like this. And I also like that you brought up this idea of pushing them against something that is intrinsic to who they are as a person. Right. Yeah. That was key for hate. He loves the Atreides and he was conditioned to kill them. Mm -hmm. Those two things, like killing the Atreides is the opposite of what makes him who he is. And so it breaks him. And that this theme sort of continues, right? In the later novels in Heretics, the final Idaho Gola that Miles Tegg is in charge of awakening, quote unquote. Right. There's this really bizarre drawn out scene where he's like physically and verbally abusing this young Duncan to the breaking point. And it's implied that because Tag looks so much like Leto the First, again, another Atreides that the original Duncan Idaho was loyal to, mm-hmm. having that lookalike yelling at him, attacking him physically, pushing him, is what snaps. His loyalty to the Atreides can't comprehend the idea of Leto the First being mean to him. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's like pretty heavily implied that that's the reason this last duncan idaho is awakened he even yells at one point right at miles he like calls him leto you know i forget what the exact quote is but something along the lines of like why are you doing this leto yeah you know that's what makes him snap is the thing that makes him intrinsically who he is his love for the atreides his loyalty to the atreides is the thing you use against Agola to break them. You know, I would probably also break if someone who looked like Oscar Isaac was physically and verbally abusing (laughs) me. (laughs) That beautiful, beautiful beard. I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to take it. If he was being mean to me, ah. Yeah. uh, All of my true memories would come back. (laughs) No, true. If Oscar Isaac was doing anything to me, physically and verbally. (laughs) Wow. I'd be contending with a lot of emotions. Look, I I just want to be real with you guys. Hey, Planet Gamont. Bend me over your knee, Oscar Isaac. (laughs) Now, speaking of bending one over one's knee, (laughs) we should touch briefly on... Is that that a weird segue? No, no, that's great. Continue, continue. That's wonderful. We should touch on tag. And we should touch on... Uh, we'll, we'll call it an innovation in the Gola Awakening game. Um, Indeed. I don't know. I don't know. Might be a step backward, <laughs> ethically. Uh, yeah. I almost think attempted murder is kinder, but I don't know. It, it's, it's a little strange. Um, they, they, they change up their methods. Yes. <laughs> Someone else explain it. <laughs> okay. I wrote this in the notes, so I'll do the duty of explaining it. 
I'll be very brief because I think I would love for us to get into a more Gola centric episode in the future. So I'm yeah. just going to sort of breeze over some of the details here and we'll put a pin in the actual conversation about Golas and their awakening and this absurd scene that happens in Chapter House 2. But the summary here is that Teg himself becomes a Gola in the last book and needs to be reawakened because the Bene Gesserit need him. And the way they reawaken him is Shiana, a character in Chapter House and Heretics, um, tries to imprint him. And imprint is just a very polite way of saying have sex with him as a way to control, like sex as a means of right like psychological control over someone we've all been there yeah <laughs> it's very weird the last books get like incredibly incredibly bizarre yeah. uh again <laughs> really strange. T- tbd tbd on that in a future episode god emperor of dune was a sign of where <laughs> things were gonna go next yeah yeah once you're reading a book about a giant worm that rules for 3500 years like <laughs> yeah. you're in it to win it at that yeah. point there's no backing out but the the point here is that she tries to imprint teg and like we were saying, the thing that makes you who you are, using that against you to break you as a Gola, Teg, when he was younger, had a reverend mother mother. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> his mom trained him to resist imprinting. You know, she sort of trained him secretly in some secret Benny Gesserit ways. Not my boy. <laughs> Ain't no one imprinting my son. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very similar, again, to how Jessica secretly trained Paul in some Prana Bindu Benny Gesserit techniques that she wasn't supposed to. Yeah. Teg's mother did the same thing. Basically, he is resistant to imprinting. Shiana and the Benny Gesserit use that against the Teg Gola, and they try to imprint him. Imprinting versus imprinting resistance, head to head, that's what breaks him, and he recalls all of his original Teg memories and becomes OG Teg in a young Teg body. Very weird. And then rides around on Shiana's shoulders. Incredibly weird. The first Super Saiyan. Uh, <laughs> we need to do a Tag episode. Yeah, there's so much to say about Tag. also. We're really bracing over a lot of juicy, juicy bits here. But the key here is, again, another application of Amtal rule, something that made Tag who he was, his mother teaching him Benny Gesserit techniques, his mother making him resistant to imprinting is what was used against him to break him and get his Gola memories back. So, again, another just clear example of Amtal rule, all the way in the sixth book. Five books and thousands of pages after it's mentioned one time (laughs) in the first Dune book, you know? Yeah. Like, it's still there. It's still a huge part of the Dune universe, and it's still being applied to many of the main characters. So it's an incredibly key philosophy to the larger world of Dune. Yeah, it's it's woven. It's a part of it, and it's woven through every story, (laughs) basically. It's interesting because the Bene Gesserit frame this new strategy for Awakening Teg as sort of a more effective way. Which is like a little bit dubious, but ultimately I think it does frame the earlier, you know, with hate, it's sort of like, try to kill him. And it's kind of this brutish, yeah, you know, that's as old as time. And so it's interesting to see how within the Dune universe, or within the Duneverse, how these characters are evolving with their understanding of Amtal, mm-hmm. right? Thousands and thousands of years later, the Bene Gesserit understand exactly to your point, Abu, and and, and to your point as well, Elaine, it's this quality of who you are at the core of you and how do you push up against that until someone breaks. So it is literally an evolution of the strategy. Um, so cool. So cool to see that progress. Well, with that said, I think we should probably get to a, a wrapping up. Um, but I wanted to, to 
give a moment. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. It was amazing mm-hmm. to have you here. Yes, my pleasure. <laughs> so much fun. And I want to give you a minute to tell us more about Nerd Cookies and where our listeners can find you on the world, world wide web. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, my channel on YouTube is Nerd Cookies. And there I cover a variety of science fiction, fantasy, news, and lore, including Dune. Uh, I'm doing a lot of Dune content right now. I'm really psyched for the new adaptation, so I'm trying to pump out some a uh, lot of videos about that. And, and most of them are friendly for ones that are kind of getting into it. I try to not be too spoilery mm. if you're new to it and kind of still give the hardcore fans some substance uh, in there as well. But sometimes you just can't avoid it. So it's spoilers abound. But those are fun also. So yeah, I've been having a lot of fun uh, making those lore videos. And I'm so happy that people are responding well to it. <laughs> But yeah, come check me out there and thank you all so much again for inviting me on. This is so much fun to to nerd out about doing <laughs> these properties we love. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun to have you on. Where can our listeners find you on social? Do you have social accounts for Nerd Cookies too? Yes, uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is it, It's at Nerd Cookies? Uh, nerd Cookies. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just find her on Twitter. <laughs> Go. I've done this before, I swear. I don't know. <laughs> Wait, is it nerd underscore cookies or nerd dash cookies? Fuck. Okay, well, technically, yes. Nerd underscore cookies on Twitter. Uh, my channel's nerd cookies. <laughs> find me there in, in the in the intersphere. Amazing. And if you can't find her on the internet, all the links will be in the show notes. Go watch these incredible videos. They're, they're so good, Elaine. We love them. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Good, good. (laughs) Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path. And also forces a... Hold on, I have a fire truck outside. Stop being on fire. Do you guys hear that? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Thanks for stopping, Abu. I'd hate to edit that part. (laughs) I hope I'm not laughing too much. <laughs> Are you apologizing for having fun, Elaine? How how dare you? How dare you have fun? <laughs> I know, I know. Sometimes I feel like I giggle too much, though, when I'm having a I, g- I giggle too much. <laughs> I Sometimes in my edits, I'm like, stop laughing, Leo. God. <laughs> but you guys make me laugh. I can't help it. Well, good. <laughs>